Hello and welcome to episode 44. Have you no sense of decorum, man? Hello and welcome to episode 44. Our listeners are no tavern bodies out to waste a halfpenny on tawdry entertainment. They have minds, ladies, gentlemen, and those who fill in the space marked other. It appears that I, the world's harshest critic, must usurp proceedings, readjust the vast intellectual imbalance, and bid you, our clockwork culturalites, greetings as we commence to present in alliance with Big Top Network and brought to you by the fine folks at Totally Irreverent, episode 44 of Nerd Culture. Transmitted to you over your ippy potographs, your Babbage-style difference engines, or computers, for those transceiving this from beyond infinity. Before we commence with delights to stimulate the faculties, let me present, in no order of importance, that Sultan of the Foglight Skies, adrift on his airship, the HMS Exile, flies David! Hello! From the bowels of the Undercity, crawling out of the oil and sawdust, we dust off the coal pa- that coal-powered pugilist, automatomic contender, Ironhead Richo! Huzzah! And last, shh, her name cannot be spoken aloud. It's rumoured she has ties to, th- to the celestial triads and runs for Her Majesty behind the locked doors of Bow Street. So, give a big hand for the mysterious Madame Crystal! You spoke my name! I know, you just said you could. <laughs> it's not her real name, we all know oh, that. Oh, that's, that's a good point, that's a good point. This episode, we discuss for our dust jacket that delightful book A Canticle for Leibovitz by Walter M. Miller, although I hear dissension among the ranks already. And later on, we have a big roundtable discussion on all things that is the marvellous steampunk! Huzzah! Yay! But first, I fear that we must return to David, because he's going to tell us something about the new setup he wishes to share with us. Thank you, Luke. That was awesome. Uh, yeah, so just wanted just a quick note on our new setup. We're very excited. Uh, we've got a new blue microphone, and that's blue as in, not what I thought, I thought it was a blue-coloured microphone, but it's actually the company blue, um, which is recording our lovely voices for you today. It's actually black. It is black. But it's called the snowball. <laughs> it's a black, it is a snowball. Could you imagine a black snowball? Ooh. It's an anti snowball. I don't want to imagine a black snowball. I don't know where it's been. Just imagine. Imagine a yellow snowball. I did have to go there, I'm sorry. Um, so it's pretty exciting. So if you do notice a... Uh, quality difference um hopefully it's for the better if it's not let us know and uh we'll work it out okay yes and we get on commence with this uh steampunk extravaganza by looking at a post-apocalyptic novel canticle for Leibovitz. so on to dust jacket and our book of the month Canticle for Leibovitz by Walter M. Miller Jr. Yep. Uh, is a post-apocalyptic book, uh, first published in 1960. Uh, it's set in a Catholic monastery over a period of several centuries. Um, it's ten centuries or so? About that, yeah. Yeah. The book is actually divided up into three sections. And it is effectively the story of uh, monks at a monastery who are trying to preserve what little information from the past that they have. And, you know, as to where it ranks in uh, the list of, you know, great science fiction books, this actually won a Hugo Award in 1961. So that must mean it's pretty good. That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> last year's batch of winners. Okay. Last, last year's batch of winners, even the nominees, you said they're gone. What? Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Moving on. 
Interestingly as well, just on a little side note, um, it's also the only novel that Walter M. Miller actually had uh, published because after reading this, I thought, I'll see what else he's done. And it turns out, not a single other novel out there. In his lifetime. There's actually a sequel to this yeah. Um, yeah. called yeah. uh, St. Leibovitz and the Wild Horsewoman, yeah. which I must admit I've not read, um, but that was published long after his death. Yeah, that was published in 97. Mm. Um, but this is actually uh, Luke's choice mm-hmm. for the month, so I'm going to pass one to Luke and he's going to tell you why. Okay, like with a lot of this stuff, there's always a little story combined around why I read this in the first place. And I read this be- really because of J. Michael Straczynski in the um, the much classic, much beloved Babylon 5 ma- fan magazine. Um, they did a review of one of the episodes from season one. I can't remember the, na- the name of the episode. Um, but it received a lot of flack because it was being a good episode and I'm a fan of it. It received a lot of flack because it wasn't a, you know, what people perceived to be a science fiction episode. The story involved Franklin having to look after a, a race who has specific religious beliefs concerning medicine. And J. Michael Straczynski's response to that was, just because it's not hard SF doesn't mean it's not SF. And he pointed out, you know, Canticle for Leibovitz, which is a classic, um, isn't hard science fiction at all. Um, and that got me curious as to why I want, as to what the story was about. So I naturally went and read it, and um, I fell in love with it. It's divided into three sections, as Richo said. The first concerning the immediate aftermath of the atomic holocaust, in which um, the Order of Leibovitz, which um, is uh, an order designed trying to preserve knowledge, but also trying to canonize Leibovitz, who in the Hol- in the area before the Holocaust was actually one of the scientists responsible for um, atomic fallout, and Leibovitz in an attempt to preserve knowledge because the rampaging hordes were trying to destroy everything because they believed knowledge was the cause of their destruction. Um, founded this order, founded this order, and the first story um, concerns itself with the early days, early years, in which it's a very small, out-of-the-way monastery uh, trying to preserve knowledge but also get Leibovitz recognized as a, um, as a saint. And the first story is actually about um, young brother brother Francis discovers whilst rummaging through some through some ruins this document. He's never seen it before. Um, it looks highly exotic, highly interesting, and he thinks it comes from Leibovitz. And all it is is Leibovitz shopping. But he can't. He, he turns it into a, a, an illuminated manuscript and presents it to the order. And the order um, asks him to go present it to. Um, uh, the Pope. Right. I think the importance of it is not what necessarily that it's that it's the shopping, which is you know mm. mundane, but the fact that it is is definitely from Leibovitz. Like, but wow. I, I think it's also a bit of both that as well. It, it, you know, it's this thing that they think it's amazing and amazing and esoteric and could have multiple meanings. And to us, yeah. it's you know um, uh, two eggs, milk. Yeah, and that's 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 the um, that's the important thing. And it, the novel proceeds to go on from there. It doesn't follow Brother Francis because all throughout the entire novel, his story is the first part. The second part, as it heads in towards a more of a Renaissance Middle Ages type um, uh, setting in the post-apocalyptic future, as the there's a as the, the power play between church and state actually ramps up, and right to the end in which every which is set ten thousand years in the future. And we are on the precipice again, and it looks like we could fall once more. In a bit of a nut, that, that's trying to cover it in a bit of a nutshell, because it is very expansive. It has it follows three different characters through each era. What I love about it is, first of all, I love Brother Francis's story. Um, I think that's the best 
for me that is the best one that is the most emotionally involving I really felt something for Brother Francis as this humble not quite naive but not very worldly ca um, character trying to um, protect this thing that he'd found that he believed was actually going to be of some worth for preservation um, but also the um, the whole idea that even though it's religious and that religion is the main thing it's not about beating people's heads over it he's not trying to preserve he's not trying to communicate doctrine but trying to talk about the other thing that might, that religion did which was actually contain knowledge um, and I think that's for me that's what I really love about the novel um, it was based on uh, Miller's own experiences during World War Two um, a famous Italian cathedral was actually attacked and demolished during um, one of the air raids that he was actually part of mm. um, and that prompted him to start to write this which was originally going to be just a series of short stories published in if galaxy but then he realized that he was what he was writing was a novel um, took the short stories expanded upon them and put them into and published them as a book awesome I was introduced to Canical by young Luke, who bought me a copy for my birthday. Yep. The first time I read through it, uh, I read through the entire, I read the entire thing, uh, mm. and um, and I agree, the first story is definitely the best. Mm. It's a lot of fun. It's mm. it you definitely definitely do feel for yeah, um, and and the, and the, the mystery of the of the the stranger that that, that helps him and yeah, is is it is it like Leibovitz? Mm. Is it not Leibovitz? Yeah. Um, I personally don't think it is, but that's you know, <laughs> it's, it's it's very it's very interesting. Um, so I, I did, but yeah, the, the second the second story for me just was the second story is the weakest. boring as hell, and then the third story sort of picked up a bit, mm. but still nowhere near as good as the first mm. one. On the second read through that I did for this episode, um, I couldn't get through the second story again. Mm. I basically said, "What am I doing this for?" Mm. I just gave up. Um, but yeah, the first story, uh, awesome stuff. Yeah, what I what I sort of like about it is uh, the I'm I'm anti religion. Mm. Um, I'm anti organized religion. Uh, but I do accept the fact that it, they do have some positive things, and they've, and they've done a lot of positive for the world. Um, doesn't balance the incredible amount of negative they've done for the world, but they've done a lot of good things. And I do like the focus of the first story about how that is. Mm. It's just you know, it's about a bunch of people who want to preserve knowledge mm. for the for the future because they know it's going to be important later on. Yeah. Um, despite people's paranoia and fear, mm. um, I just think it sort of loses its way. Richard. Actually, interestingly, reading it, I, I do agree with what everybody has said. That first story, reading that first story, I was willing to give the book five already. Just based on that first story, I'm like, this is magnificent. Um, the second story is really does suffer from, you know, what I'd call you know, the, the the standard second movie syndrome, where it's just it's mm. just a, basically a filler to get you through to that third story. Um, but what I did find interesting reading this is there's actually I, I found a lot of similarities between this and. Um, uh, foundation, and mm. that the the premise of trying to preserve knowledge is there, and also the structure of the story. This, of course, jumps much quicker through its time periods than Foundation does. Um, but I sort of saw parallels between the two. Um, what lets this down a little bit is, unlike Foundation, where each story is really fascinating, mm. um, this one, yeah, it just kind of it fizzles through that middle story. The end story is interesting from an academic level, but once again, I didn't feel much of a... I didn't feel a connection to the characters, which is what yeah. I feel in that first story. Yeah. Like, the characters were kind of just there to... In, in the second and third story, they're there, and they're there to kind of progress the story along, but you don't really get that that personal connection mm. with them in any way. Crystal? I have a thing when I start reading books, I generally 
I don't read the blurb and often don't look at when it was written because I think I like going in blind. But I got sort of part way through the first part and I had to I had to look when when was this written and when I realised it was in 1960 I thought oh, okay and it made me think that uh, if this book had been written more recently it would read very differently mm. because it, it did read as a very late 50s early 60s version of what they thought a post-apocalyptic world might turn into mm. and it was a bit odd reading it in this time period without knowing because uh, we had a newer copy of the book too, so I'm, I don't know why. I just assumed it was a recent book. Yeah. And I thought this this doesn't sound right. It's not making me. Words. <laughs> yeah, things like Atomic Holocaust. And, yeah, and um, um, and then there's uh, they, they talk about the last sort of days with Leibowitz and and it's um it just that's what made me think. Oh, this is this is older than what I thought it was. Um, it was interesting the the cyclical nature of it, the the message of the story being that if the human race doesn't learn from its its, its mistakes, it's doomed to make those mistakes over and over again. And it's not it wasn't really as uh, another post apocalyptic book, not, not really my cup of tea. Uh, I did uh, like Luke. I found Brother Francis quite endearing, um, and I think that was the best story. As a book, how did you think it shaped up? You know, it, it is just that that first one it really works really well, or as I, a whole? I actually kind of found it. I found it a bit uh, annoying that Brother Francis's story ended and we jumped into the future. It was it was like reading three books rather than one mm. book. Um, I prefer a book, and it's just my own personal taste. There's not no not casting any aspersions on the book itself, but I prefer a book to sort of um, start and finish with the same group of characters or at least connect those characters in some way mm. even if we are leaping toward the future like foundation does i mean it, it mm. does connect that yeah. up the transitions in foundation good point it's a bit, yes it's yeah. more of a transition where this is just sort of ends and then starts it leaps forward yeah just one thing i do want to point out about that you know post-apocalyptic fallout type world you were talking about i did love the idea that he discovers the fallout shelter yeah, yeah and he yeah. thinks that fallout is some kind of monster yeah. and that therefore they must be living inside this this shelter and that must be where they've been preserved i thought that was actually really quite fascinating yeah i did find it really interesting that they regressed right back to um the monks and they're illuminating their their scriptures and things and it's they've remembered all the pre-printing press technology stuff and, yeah. and, and they've gone and they're doing things exactly the same way as they were before but they don't remember anything past that mm. yeah. well the knowledge has been destroyed and they've had to relearn yeah but they've had to relearn but but it's it was interesting right from the start they're repeating the previous mm. cycle yeah yeah um so cool all right then let's go with uh ratings uh david uh i give it two looks mm-hmm. based mainly on the first story yep cool Richard? Um, if I was basing it just on the first story, as I said earlier, I would probably give it five looks because I thought the first story fantastic. Overall, um, i give it three looks. Crystal? I agree. Um, just basing it on the first story, I would give it three looks. Um, I might have given it four if I, would, if, the, if I enjoyed the rest of it as much. Yeah. Hmm. Um, for me, uh, first story is always marvellous, always has been, and I do like the last, the last story and the way that it wraps up and sort of basically points to the cyclical nature of what's going on. Um, however, that middle story, I, after reading it the first time, never remembered what happened in it. Mm, yeah. It was just a complete blank. Um, 
Having said that though, the the parts are pretty good. Oh my goodness, four looks. Awesome. Cool. All right. Thank you guys for sitting through um, a Candica Philippowitz. Not as explosive as I thought it might actually be. I thought that uh, David and I were going to come to... We're going to have to draw swords and... I thought you would have said something when I said two looks, but I mean, it's... I didn't find it offensive. I, I mean, I wasn't. It wasn't like, oh my god, why it's, am but, I reading but it, this? It, in the, in it's the, in not Orson's got card offensive. <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the build up to in, in this, you've always had a slight roll of your eyes in the case of, oh god, I've got to read this boring piece of talk again. No, no, that's fine. It, mm. It's. I, I mean, I didn't. Yeah, like I said, I didn't. I didn't think it was horrendous. It wasn't like, oh my god, my life is ruined. It's. Mm. But uh, you know, I just, I just, I won't read it again. Yeah, it, <laughs> I, I will acknowledge there are some flaws. I both saw the film when they get, when they finally get the film made. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll cool. check that out. All right then. Well, that's it for Dust Jacket for this week. Let's get onto the round table with Steampunk. Okay, so now it's time for the roundtable discussion, which you've all been eagerly anticipating. I know I have. Huzzah! <laughs> You're obsessed with that word today. <laughs> okay, um, for those of you who have no idea what, I, what I'm talking about when I actually mention the word steampunk, you might have seen them wandering around your town, city, um, uh, commode, abode, what have you. Commode. Commode. I thought commode was a toilet. Yeah, commode is a toilet. You never know what some of these people as they drip, as they take their absinthe. And, um, That's right. People on absinthe, they do wacky stuff. They do. Um, uh, men and women, young men, generally young men and women, wearing top hats and carrying around canes and wearing corsets. wearing corsets. But also, then, if you look close, you'll see that there's uh, something not quite right with their attire and that they're wearing. Uh, that there's something you know almost cog-like about you know a certain monocle over the eye, or that the lady happens to be wearing you know a gauntlet that has a crossbow attached to it, or something along those lines. That is only a ten percent accounting of what steampunk might might actually be. Um, but it is a sort of a it's probably the one one concrete area that everyone um, might have for um, the term. Um, and we're going to go into a bit of a roundabout way. When we get to this, I'm going to talk about influences and a bit of a pricey on what gets us to steampunk and the coining of the term. And then I'm going to throw it open to the group a little bit and I'm going to ask them a question. Um, because we've all done some research on specific aspects of steampunk um, at my request. Because, um, you know, evil dictator that I am. Um, so let's get on with it. So, Luke made uh, us so- do homework. <laughs> she says pouting. <laughs> it's all good. Steampunk refers to a rather specific point um, in Western history, um, particularly the 1800s of, um, of uh, England, um, with a bit of America thrown in, um, particularly the ideas behind some of the technology, um, the, the invention of the steam-powered, the combustible steam-powered engine which um, fired up the revolution is certainly a key point, but the other one is also Charles Babbage's theory for um, a difference engine, which is effectively the first computer, and Wiki has this um, this definition for it, an, autom- an automatic mechanical calculator, um, or computer, effectively. Um, and so the ball gets rolling from there. It also incorporates um, some of the more cultural and societal cultural values of the time period as well, particularly the class structure. Um, you know, you have your upper class, your lower class, um, and your middle class, more defined back then. 
than it was than it was today because each, with each class you had your own sense of refinery, your own sense of values, um, your own particular dress style for a start. Um, but with a more do-it-yourself um, perspective, if that makes sense. Um, and then more importantly, the actual work that was done at the time, particularly the work of H.G. Wells, Jules Verne, and to a certain extent Arthur Conan Doyle um, with uh, The Lost World. And funnily enough, something that I've never discovered until doing some research for this, something called the Edison Aids. Now, the Edison Aids uh, um, was a term coined by John Clute and uh, Peter Nichols for um, the Comprehensive Encyclopedia of Science Fiction. Um, in which they describe it as a strand of books or series of books involving young men using inventions or science to get them out of particular situations. Um, uh, named after, they coined it after, of course, Thomas Edison, who, mm -hmm. you know, one of the, the one of the very famous early inventors of the late 18th century, early sorry, late 19th century, early 20th century. And the earliest example on record is the Huge Hunter of the Steam Man of the Prairie by Edward S. Ellis, published in 1868. Um, others were the work of Fra uh, were the Frank Reed series and the, um, some of the early Tom Swift stories. And they were just, you know, effectively adventure stories with a giant mechanical boilerplate robot thrown in for good measure to make it more interesting. Sweet! Um, and that's really where the, um, the influences for steampunk, steampunk come from. Um, there are early examples of the genre. Uh, one early novel is Queen Victoria's Bomb, published in 1967, written by Ronald W. Clay, I think. I cannot read my notes. Um, and <laughs> That's pretty bad. Yes, that is pretty bad. Um, another one is, of course, Michael Moorcock, who's seen as sort of a bit of a grandfather with, this, um, with his Oswald Bustable stories, um, the first of which was also called Warlord of the Air, um, the first of which was called A Nomad of the Time Streams, published in 1971. And on TV, you had the Wild Wild West um, TV show in 1965, which was the adventures of Jim West working for the um, working for the U.S. president um, as a spy, uprooting various criminals uh, and what have you, but doing it in uh, using uh, more James Bond-like inventions. But it's set in the late 1800s, um, and that's sort of seen as an early example. There is no term for it just yet. That should be pointed out that no one is calling it steampunk. No one is calling it anything. It's just sort of fiction, science fiction, maybe hearkening back to H.G. Wells and Jules Verne. Then in 1979, K.W. Jetta publishes a book called Morlock Knight, which I'm going to talk about later on because I'm talking about books. But it's important to mention this because from here, he, Tim Powers, who I'll also talk about a little bit, and James P. Blaylock begin to publish um, stories with a more Victorian-infused um, flavor. Um, they're publishing mainly fantasy and science fiction, um, and it sort of get, grows in cult acclaim, which leads to April 1987. And in April 1987, in the magazine, in the, uh, the trade journal for science fiction literature, um, Locus, K.W. Jetta actually writes and says something along these lines uh, uh, that he thinks that Victorian fantasies are going to be the next big thing as long as they can come up with a name for it. Something um, based on the appropriate technology of the era, like steampunks, perhaps. Now, it should be important to note that he is, of course, being a bit tongue-in-cheek and being a bit reflect reactionary to cyberpunk, which was first which started its um, big um, explosion, pop cultural explosion in 1984 with publishing of Neuromancer by William Gibson. And William Gibson himself writes a steampunk novel later on. Um, but that's where it begins. 
Although he doesn't call it steampunk, though, does he? He doesn't call it steampunk. He actually quite, it, quite dislikes the term. But everyone goes, yeah, no, we're calling you on that one. It's steampunk. It's like it's like Jeff Johns in, um, in The Blackest Night, Green Lantern story. It's, like, it's not a zombie story. It's like, of course it's a zombie story. <laughs> it's um, full of zombies. Anyway, moving on. And so, we, so now we have an actual term for it, coined by one of the people pra- practicing it, used, trying to describe the fiction that he, Powers, and Blaylock were writing because they were really the only ones doing it at the time. Um, and then we, so we have steampunk. So now I'm going to throw it open to the group with this question. So guys, what is steampunk? David, you've been talking about comics. What is steampunk in relation to, in your personal view, and in relation to comics? Uh, well, I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head in terms of what is steampunk in your excellent opening description. Um, but comics is where comics have really embraced uh, the steampunk, steampunk culture. Yep. Not so much as, say, cos- cosplay is obviously mm. the biggest steampunk there at the moment, but comics have really, really latched onto it. Um, which is cool because we're all comic fans, yep. except for Crystal, obviously. <laughs> um, there's, uh, I mean, obviously, the most obvious would be League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Mm. Um, which of which course, I have read. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The Absolute <laughs> Edition. Huzzah! <laughs> <laughs> Huzzah. Um, which, of course, I think is Brent's mm. and um, has really uh, has served to influence quite a lot of. It wasn't the mm. first, yeah. um, but it's probably the most famous mm. um, and probably one of, the, one of the best, to be truth be told. Uh, another one is actually, funnily enough, called Stingpunk. Yeah. <laughs> which, not a very original name, but uh, by Joe Kelly and uh, Chris Bacallo. Um, I'm not. I'm actually not a huge fan of Chris Piccolo's artwork, mm. um, but for steampunk, it works. Mm. It really, really works. Mm. And uh, it is. It was a short-lived sort, uh, series. It's not very many issues, but uh, I highly recommend that you check it out. It was awesome. It really just sort of captured sort of the, the spirit. Um, but the list of uh, steam, steampunk uh, comics uh, is huge. Mm. Um, some of them I sort of disagree on whether they actually are sort of steampunk. So, so the, the idea of steampunk is is quite broad. Yep. Um, as, you, as you'll hear when you get to Richo's one, there's, there's a couple of ex- examples that are thrown in that aren't uh, we that I personally don't consider to be steampunk, but, yep. um, but that uh, are included in there. Mm. So, um, so I'll, what I'll, I'll go through a list of some steampunk comics. Uh, but just before I do, what I've actually quite found quite fascinating uh, researching this for the for the episode was that. There's actually quite a large amount of steampunk erotica yeah, <laughs> out there. Um, I mean, uh, books, which I'm sure you'll get to, but in, in, in terms of comics, there's like a whole range of erotica, erotica steampunk stories, which yeah, are fascinating. Pro- I mean, st- I mean, the whole the whole, whole idea of courses is quite erotic. Well, as I find it that way, I don't know if I'm revealing something weird here, but I mean, the, you know, the whole, <laughs> sort, of, sort of the corset sort of thing is, mm. is you know, is. is Obviously, it's quite sexy. Yeah. But, uh, this is already no you weird. Yeah, but like full on actual mm. like steampunk porn, mm. essentially, mm. which I just found very, very strange. And, and, and I think it sort of basically stems from the fact that um, uh, women have really latched onto steampunk in a big way, mm. uh, mainly because it was, it, was, uh, it was independent women in a time when women weren't allowed to be independent. And it was also the beginning of emancipation and yeah, suffrage movement. And... Yeah, exactly like that. So, um, so they're they're really big into it, and that's that's awesome to see. Mm. So it's really cool. Anyway, so just a, it's a bunch of uh, steampunk comics um, that I managed to track down. The Amazing Screw on Head by Mike Mignola. Check it out. Great awesome. stuff. Awesome. Great stuff. Um, I have read um, in preparation. I did read uh, quite a few of these. I did, there were some of them I couldn't manage to track down, but there was a few. Uh, the Adventures of Luther Arkwright by Brian Talbot. Another yep. good one. Calamity Jack by Shannon and Dean Hale. Uh, Captain Swin and the Electrical Pirates of Sindri Island by Warren Ellis. Um, 
magnificent title. I haven't, I haven't read it, but it's Warren Ellis, so I'll check it out. Uh, Daisy Cutter, The Last Train by Kazuo Kibushi. Uh, and it's it, that's another thing, too, is it's, it's international. Mm. You know, the, the people have just really lashed onto this. Which, sort of which is strange given how... Um how really almost specific it tends to be in terms of its culture. You, for the most part, it is it centres around Victorian era England. Yeah. Oh, that's that's the whole point. Of it, mm. is Victorian era. Yeah, but so. yeah, and it has quite this huge international. Yeah. Another good one is the Five Fists of Science by Matt Fraction and Stephen Sanders. Girl Genius by Phil and Kaja Foglio. Um, very unique art style. Mm. Um, check it out. Uh, Granville, a detective with a Brock scientific romance thriller by Brian Talbot. Mm. Uh, he shows up again. Uh, Iron West by Doug Tenapple, uh, Lady Mechanica by Joe Benitez. Um, check it out. It's uh, Is it an image comic, I think? Um, no, he's actually separated. Was it Sirius? Yeah, he's, he's been, he's been through a few now? publishers as far oh, as yeah. I know with it. So. I, I really enjoyed it. It was really good. Um, the aforementioned League, of course. Uh, Lovelace and Babbage by Sidney Perdue. Monster Commute by Daniel Davis. Rapotica by Alex Sheikman. Scarlet Traces by Ian Eddington. Uh, Time Lincoln. <laughs> which looks hilarious. I haven't read it, but it just sounds magnificent uh, by Fred Perry. Um, and one I just wanted to, the last one I just wanted to chuck in the list because I know Luke would be a fan. Interested to get your opinion. I only just read this a couple of days ago. Batman Gotham by Gaslight. Yeah, big fan. And it does come into the... But more, I think, the second one hmm. because you've got Robert from the Jules Verne character yeah. um, into it. Whereas the first one's Jack the... You know, a real Batman in a real event. The second one is, no, nah, let's put him on an airship. Yeah, um, and it's a very it is a very fun read. Um, there's another one there that um, in in that rather comprehensive list. Well done. To oh, that was, that's it. nothing. Um, I, was playing, I didn't list any of the erotic ones. Um, but I didn't the, do but what one, I admit that I checked. One that I think is important because it's quite it comes in that early period is Book Four of Nemesis the Warlock by Pat Mills and Brian, Brian Talbot. Talbot once again. Um, I Brian. Published by 2000 AD. So I had a lot of fun um, researching mm. my section. It was very cool. I got to check out some um, mm-hmm. some. Some comics that I probably wouldn't normally have read, mm. and I love I love steampunk. I'm I'm, I'm right that we're doing this mm. subject because I, I think steampunk is is it's just awesome, mm. and it's one of those sort of things. If, if only it was real, I would live there. So yes. <laughs> so, but uh, so through that, what is steampunk to you then? Steampunk to me is um, high adventure, individualism, rip roaring adventure yarns. You know, is like you know the 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 go get them. You know, action men and the mm. and the intelligent sassy women who you know who, who can take care of themselves and and uh but more importantly it's just, it's you know it's it's cool fashion and and uh, you know magnificent sort of gadgets you know mm. I mean, it's just it's really cool when I, when I was doing the research for all this i saw a, um it's quite popular to sort of make steampunk versions of current existing characters things, yeah. characters and stuff and there's a steampunk star wars picture that we come across which is just magnificent so I, is, I just i love that sort of i love that that sort of that old school but still techie sort of stuff mm. so yeah so big fan cool uh, that was um, mighty impressive there Mr. David may I say um, so thank you very much for looking at comics for us I'm going to pass uh, ask the question now to Crystal Crystal what is steampunk to you you've been looking at sort of the wider cultural um, aesthetic and implications so in your researches what is steampunk well as you say you've asked me to look into this steampunk I've written down subculture but it's I just I prefer to just call it culture. When, when I do, was doing my research into the steampunk, steampunk culture, uh, what impressed me the most is the all-inclusive nature of it. It doesn't matter who you are, where your interests lie, there seems to be a facet of steampunk culture that can grab your attention, whether you're a 
a do-it-yourself uh, fixer-upper person, whether you're into fashion, whether you're into books, whether you're into movies, you name it, there's a place in that area for you. Um, that's where, um, before when, when David was talking about it being an international thing, um, that doesn't surprise me at all because it's just, even though it's sort of set in Victorian England and to a lesser extent America, it, it just has facets that anybody can relate to. Mm. So it's, there's within the steampunk cultural world, there's conventions, as we spoke about, there's already fic, there's fiction. Uh, you have your inventors and builders, people actually building full-scale working things, usable things, and people creating their steampunk personas and the cosplay and... It's, you can you can get as far into it as you want to, be like, totally immerse yourself, or you can just dabble your toe in it, like I've been doing, reading stories and, and looking through books, and it's 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 fascinating. And, and what the aspect I like most about it is the uh, the creativeness and the art. Um, looking at the gadgets that people make, um, reinventing stuff, using. The Victorian era technology using cogs and, and steam, hence the term. It, it, it's fascinating. The colours too, I really the the, the bronzy, yeoldy colours. I actually think, yeah, I actually think the retro engineering part of it is the most fascinating aspect of the of the subculture. Like the fact that these people are actually going going and reconstructing things, but reconstructing them with modern knowledge of technology applied and knowledge of the modern world but then applied to you know technology from a hundred years ago i think is just incredible it's it's like the ultimate manifestation of the subculture is for people to do that mm. to actually try and recreate in the real world what is part of the fantasy world of steampunk mm. and as for my de- definition of what is steampunk well there's a it's a broad definition but uh to be essentially steampunk, in my opinion, it has to, even if it's not set in that particular era, you have to have things that uh, identify as that particular era, the, the costume, the clothes, the technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's actually one of the things that, one of the things I've really responded to, particularly doing more research for this, is, um, is that sort of linking back to a previous culture, but also the creation of an identity as well, which you also mentioned. A lot of people don't just, you know, put on top hats and carry canes they go into it full ball they've got a character and uh, mm. an identity and a backstory for that character as well so now i'm going to throw it over to the person who had the most difficult time with this because in his area his area was a little bit harder to um talk about i'm going to throw the question over to richo richo what is steampunk and what is steampunk in terms of film well, the first interesting point I think needs to be made for film is that the absolute most purest form, I think, of steampunk can actually be found in the earliest days of cinema. I mean, you know, cinema was a developing art form in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, and I think the, the absolute most classic example of a, a steampunk type movie I've seen, or probably a prototype steampunk film, would actually be A Trip to the Moon. Hmm. Um, Ely's film, um, you know, they build a rocket, they fly to the moon, they encounter moon men, they crash the rocket into the moon's eye. I mean, um, it's remarkably fantastic, but all, all of the trappings of steampunk, I think, are there. And I'll talk a little bit more about those in, in a moment. But um, but obviously, as uh, technology advanced beyond that level and, you know, films were, you know, you, you didn't get a lot of that sort of retro 
type of movie um, really up until fairly recently, with the exception, of course, of there were a lot of uh, adaptions made of uh, Jules Verne and H.G. Wells' work, uh, things like The Time Machine and uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Which sort of infused the aesthetic of steampunk. Absolutely, but oh, um, the Nautilus. Mm. Yeah, Great. but they're really they're really not trying to be sort of the the retro aspect that steampunk has now. These are just trying to adapt to these stories. So yeah, it's really not until recently. In fact, in fact, um, cinema, especially Hollywood, has been very very slow yeah. in embracing uh, steampunk. Um, and when they do, it's it's more steampunk elements than actual genuine steampunk. Um, I mean, films like uh, Sucker Punch has a lot of the aesthetics of uh, steampunk, but it's not really a steampunk movie. not really a movie. It's not really a movie at all, true. Um, <laughs> Poor sucker punch. Then, of course, you have things like, um, and I do want to apologise to the listeners here because we're going to get into really bad movies here, um, the movie adaptation of Wild Wild West, oh. the movie adaptation of The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. L-X-G! <laughs> um... Uh, look, these films—they—they're kind of what I would call surface mm. steampunk. They have the gadgets, they have the outfits, and everything, but there's no real sense of some of the aspects that I think make make yeah. steampunk important, which is the feel of the Victorian era. Yeah. You know, you're talking about um, you know a, a, an empire that is you know almost pretty much at the height of its power. There's, uh, you know, the, the, the steam engine revolution. Um, there's a sense of, you know, opening up the world, that sense of awe and wonder. Um, but also that slight sort of sense of um, almost gothic menace. Mm-hmm. I think neither of those films have any of those aspects to them whatsoever. Well, Wild West has some very cool visual elements. Yeah. Like yeah. some of the design work is very, very cool. Yeah. But you're right, both films. Yeah. Awful. Um, once again, another film that's not very good at all, but I think at least at least tries to capture a little bit more of that feel is actually Van Helsing. Um, but then that's also employing sort of the gothic horror elements as well. But once again, though, it's a terrible movie. Probably uh, one of the uh, best examples of embracing actual steampunk comes through anime. Um, Miyazaki's uh, Howl's Moving Castle, I think, is a, a very good example of, a, of really trying to, to capture the essence of steampunk um, and steamboy as well. Mm. Um, yeah, I was about to say, you can't, if you're going to mention that, you've got to mention Katsushiro Motomo. Exactly. But there are, there's two movies specifically that I, I want to point to because there are two movies that I think actually perfectly encapsulate uh, steampunk. Uh, one's an animated film and one's a live action film. Um, the live action film is The Prestige, which we've talked about a little bit in the past when we were reviewing the book, but it's, set in the Victorian era. You've got um, Tesla and Tesla's technology and the fantastic element is there of uh, this technology that creates duplicates of people. Um, But at the same time, it is just totally entrenched in the feel of Victorian era England um, that the other films that I've mentioned have just failed to capture. You wouldn't throw Sky Captain in the world tomorrow in there? No. Okay. Um, actually, before I go on to the animated film, I'll just talk about that briefly. Um, a couple of films that do come up when people are talking about um, steampunk movies. One is Sky Captain, and mm. the other one is Metropolis. Mm. Um, but for me, um, just getting back to what is steampunk, steampunk is about that 
era of the late 1800s, early 1900s, and the, the sensibilities and the fashion and the technology of that era. Things like Sky Captain and Metropolis are more informed by um, the later era, by Art Deco design um, and Art Nouveau design. There's Rocketeer. Much like Rocketeer. Um, there is actually a term for these. It's called diesel punk. Right. Okay. And and that's definitely I would put those into the diesel punk period, the diesel punk category, and that's why I haven't included them here because I, I think you're kind of you know stretching it if you're trying to incorporate things informed by 1920s and 1930s mm. uh, designs and fashion and and sensibilities rather than by the actual Victorian era. Mm-hmm. Um, the animated film, and I, I I'm going to boast a bit here because it's an Australian film, yay, and Oscar nominated. Uh, short film. Uh, it's just under thirty minutes long. Yep. Um, called the mysterious geographic explorations of Jasper Morello, and it is pure steampunk. It is. It's all gadgets and cogs and you know flying airships and all all, all of the aesthetics of of steampunk are there. But also, it's the the awe and wonder, and the the actual going out and exploring the world, and trying to find new things, and and you know using this this fantastic new technology that you've discovered to actually go out and and, and really investigate the world, and and that sensibility I think is a big part of steampunk as well. Um, but also, what another thing that just makes this such an amazing film is the way in which it's animated. Um, is almost in sort of shadow puppet style. So it's also using the, the style of its animation as a throwback to that era as well. Um, and so for me, I think that's probably the most perfect, purest example I've seen hmm. of, of just straight out steampunk. Wow, that was actually a lot more extensive than I thought it was going to be. Um, <laughs> thank you very much for that, for that um, uh, Ironhead. Um, okay, so now it comes to me. Um, I've been looking at books, and for me, steampunk is more than the aesthetic qualities. It is the attempts to recreate a, a bygone world, but say that nothing is impossible. It's taking on the aesthetic, it's taking on the cultural ideas, but then it says there's more to it, and you can do more with it as well. Um, and the, I'm going to start off by mentioning the first the one that the book that really gets the ball rolling, which is uh, Morlock Knight. I'm going to look at four books, um, and speak about them very, very briefly. Um, the first one I'm talking about is Morlock Knight by K.W. Jetta, published in 1979. And because of this book, Steampunk almost happened by accident. Um, it wasn't planned by planned by Jetta per se. Um, he was invited to write, he and Powers were invited to write about a fantasy about the um, the second coming of King Arthur, of all, of all topics. And so um, the, that deal eventually fell through, but through that he took the idea he had, which is to put that idea um, up against the Morlocks from the time travel, from the time machine by H.G. Wells. So it's sort of a sequel to um, H.G. Wells' work, um, in which um, it's revealed that the Morlock, that if something isn't done, the Morlocks are going to invade um, London and the world, and the only person who can actually beat them is King Arthur and his second coming, which is just a strange, strange idea. Well, what? Um, serious? <laughs> I'm serious. That's what the book is about. But I think that that gets to the heart of it, which is, it, it's you don't actually, nothing actually is set in stone. Nothing is impossible. You can have King Arthur come back and fight Morlocks in Victorian era London, and sort of 
uh, goes from there. The next one I want to talk about briefly is um, the Anubis Gates by Tim Powers, which I'm a big fan of. It was published in 83, around about the time of Neuromancer, maybe even a little bit before. And I'm not going to talk about it too much because I want to talk about this we'll actually review as, it. as a proper review. Yeah. But I think the interesting thing about this is that it actually doesn't have a lot of the steampunk aesthetic, yet it is um, quite often lumped in with steampunk. Quite often is one of the best ones, if not the best. Um, but it doesn't have... It is First of all, it is a time travel story. It is literally set in the 1800s. But it is about um, our main character actually discovering that there is a world within the world mm. that there are, is, you know, magical practitioners and Egyptian gods, and that's why it gets lumped in. And they lumped in with the steampunk. And it's actually interesting that in both of these cases, there are the twinges of adventure, but it's more about the character's reaction to the world that they suddenly find themselves in. Um, the two ones that I want to talk about are more modern. One is The Kingdom uh, Beneath the Waves by Stephen Hunt, which was published in... Uh, 2008, mm. and Shri Priest's first steampunk novel, which is Bone Shaker, which was nominated for the 2009 Hugo Awards, um, and it's sort of they're they're both interesting in their in their in how they view we view steampunk now, taking on board the more aesthetic qualities, you know, the clockwork nature of the world, um, the more steam powered automata um, effects, as opposed to um, the first two I mentioned, which are actually you know more set literally in Victorian London with these strange um, things happening. Uh, Stephen Hunt, which is the second... The Kingdom Beneath the Waves is Stephen Hunt's second novel in his series. Um, unlike a lot of the others, he actually hasn't set it in a real city or a time period. He's actually set it in his own creation, inspired by um, Victorian-era London, um, called uh, Jacalian, I think it's called. Mm. Um, in, and the story is effectively a search for um, this fourth version of Atlantis. So it is an adventure story, but with you know steampunk versions of a Scarlet Pimpernel type and um, what have you. Um, it's not a bad novel; it's very very verbose. But I find it interesting that um, it takes on the more adventure aesthetic um, of steampunk as opposed to sort of the more gothic element. Um, and the other one, of course, Bone Shaker, is probably the one of the biggest steampunk novels in recent years. Um, it is, in fact, a zombie novel. Yay! Um, it is about a, about a, about a boy who breaks into um, a, um, a section of Seattle that has been cordoned off due to a zombie plague. He's trying to find out the identity and save the um, the name of his grandfather and his father. Um, and his mother has to go in to get him out. Um, the interesting thing is that Bone Shaker is set in America, um, and yeah, it actually incorporates more of a, ho- a horror instead of a gothic vibe with the use of zombies. Um, it's probably not as good as everyone says, and it does t- does follow more of a plot base as opposed to a character, or even the world itself. But it is worth mentioning because it is one of the bigger ones in recent years. I'm only mentioning these four because there are a lot yeah. of um, steampunk books, and steampunk is really where books are really where the steampunk culture has incubated and and been nurtured, and everything's come from the books per se. Yeah, steampunk for me, it's not just an adventure. It's it's about discovering that the world that you know it, there are no bounds, there are no limits. So that is sort of steampunk, and that I've actually asked everyone here to um create sort of get in the spirit of steampunk with the um the do-it-yourself nature and the creationism, and create their own persona. Cool. Um, and I'm actually quite interested to see what you guys have come up with. So I'm actually going to throw this open. Is there does there is there anyone here who wants to go first? I'll go first. Cool. 
I was very excited about this thing. Mm. You know, this creating characters, a role, a role player from you know many moons ago. So I was, I was very, very excited. Uh, so what what I actually did was I found uh, when I was uh, doing the research, I found a whole bunch of images. Um, it's very popular in art, steampunk, and I found a particular image that just really inspired me. I'll post I'll post the image on the website. I'll try and track down who originally did it, so I can actually can so I can credit them properly. So my character bio goes as such. Uh, so we have identical twin brothers Joseph and Isaac Holloway. Uh, they're sons of a respected scientist and inventor, William Holloway the uh, Third. Their mother dies uh, died in childhood, uh, in childbirth. Sorry. Joseph is a track and gymnastics star. Uh, he's well liked and respected in society. Uh, Isaac is charming and charismatic young man who wastes his genius intellect with womanizing and gambling. I like him already. Huzzah! <laughs> so obviously I uh, associate more with Isaac. One fateful day, Joseph is hurt saving a bystander from a drunk driver. He is fully paralyzed. William abandons his studies and experiments and devotes his entire focus on inventing a harness that will enable his son to walk again. He is eventually successful and Joseph rejoins society, but is depressed from the accident and feels that he is less of a man. Isaac returns home to be with his brother, but they soon fight and he returns to his carousing ways. Rivals of Williams wants the secret of the harness, but he refuses. Late one night they go to the Holloway house to bribe or coerce him, but he again refuses and demands that they leave. Fed up, they attack him. Joseph hears the commotion and intercedes and kills them. Accidentally. But not before they kill William and set fire to the house. Joseph is mortally wounded in the fight, but he carries his father's body out of the house. Isaac arrives to see Joseph collapse in the front garden. He rushes to their aid. After struggling to tell him what happened, Joseph dies in his arms. Despite his grief, Isaac removes the suit and hides it before the authorities arrive. He then goes into hiding, not even attending the funeral for his father and brother. Society is scandalised, but he doesn't care. He figures out the secret entrance to his father's basement lab and discovers that it is still intact and only slightly damaged. He finishes some of his father's inventions, a, a steam-powered jetpack and special vision goggles, and modifies uh, Joseph's suit to include them, along with some other embellishments. Donning this outfit, he proceeds to wreak havoc on the criminal underworld, starting by killing those responsible for his father's and brother's deaths. The media dub him the Rocket Man, but he prefers the name one of the cops calls him, Iron Justice. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's excellent. Very nice. So yeah, obviously I was going for sort of a... I'm a big fan of the Rocketeer, mm. uh, especially the, uh, the Rocketeer comics mm. brain stuff. Yeah. And the movie, of course, because yeah, it's awesome. Um, so yeah, so I was trying to go for a sort of a... I didn't want to. I didn't want to move into diesel punk and upset Richo. So, <laughs> right. so, I, so I had to. So I had to make sure that he was a steam powered, you know, rocket rocket man. No, but it's quite. It, that's quite nice. You know, he, he, you've got a nice uh, dichotomy there between the two brothers hmm. and between the father and the son, and um, and I wanted to check in some, you know, vigilante sort of, you know, the shadow spider. Sort yeah, it, it's. Even I know, I know it's. I know. It's not, I know it's later. No, 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 no but, but see, it's not. It wasn't sitting there going, "Oh my god, that sounds completely anachronistic." It, you know, it sounds quite fresh and um, interesting. And you know, rocket men, jetpacks, always cool. How can you say no? Mm. Um, that was excellent, and I could not have asked for better. That was a. That sounds like a. That sounds like a character I'd want to read. Um, and, the, and uh, oh, sorry, just and the picture. I, mm. you know, I, I do hope I can find the person who originally did it because it is magnificent. It is a very good picture. Yeah, Crystal. My character is a humanoid android. Now, before you go, 
That's not steampunk. Let me just ramble on a bit here. It's <laughs> <laughs> not rambling on. It's expressing your yeah, creativity. Your creativity. Let me express my creativity. Excellent. Um, now, this humanoid android has been flung back into the past by some kind of space-time accident involving a wormhole or some other temporal anomaly. Cool. He ends up in medieval times, and there's no way for him to get back to his own time except to live through the ages, but by the time he makes it to the beginning of the Industrial Age, he's starting to deteriorate. He's modelled closely on human structure, so, so close, in fact, that humans at this time can't tell that he's artificial. He's a complete facsimile in that he has all he has all the bones, muscles, tissues, and fluids that would make up a human being. However, all of it is synthetic. The blood, in quotes, is that flows through his veins, in quotes, is made up of synthetic plasma carrying nanites instead of blood cells and platelets. So this fluid needs to be replenished every few hundred years, depending on wear and tear. And by the time of the industrial age, there is no substitute that he can use. However. The ingenious android has devised a way to make his nanites work with a water mixture. He's created using sugar, fat, salt and proteins. The heart pumps the fluid to cells throughout the body. The nanites heat the fluid, causing the mix to activate so that it brings nourishment to them and removes any waste products. This fluid also contains blood clotting factors, sugar, lipids, vitamins, minerals, hormones, enzymes, antibodies and other proteins, all of which the android is able to synthesize with the help of his nanites. The android muses that because the nanites are heating the water, he's in effect a steam-powered. This is not entirely accurate as the fluid does not turn to vapour, but over the years of being stranded, the android has developed a wry sense of humour. It is for this reason he calls himself Thomas Watt, a combination of early inventor names. <laughs> That's great. I like that. No, very good. Very nice. Very nice. It's interesting. So we've got the, um, the jet-powered rocket superhero on one hand, and now we've got the time-travelling... Um, humanoid android trying what doing whatever he can to keep himself alive and going. It's great, guys. I think this is this is really good. Developed um, a rise. It's a hero. <laughs> um, so let's move on to old Ironhead. <laughs> you know, I Iron almost feel like head. I should have created a character called Ironhead. <laughs> Ironhead. <laughs> he could have his own theme song. <laughs> Uh, my character is a mysterious but enigmatic figure known only as Brunel the Grand Architect. Basically, uh, Brunel was a scientist and inventor who uh, took the work of Charles Babbage and his different engine and actually mastered it. But in mastering it, he wasn't satisfied because the difference engine, whilst it was doing calculations and things, showed no imagination whatsoever. So he began extrapolating on the work and eventually created a very small but working Imagine engine. The Imagine Engine took his own ideas and imagination and was able to calculate the reality of those objects and actually he was then able to start constructing small things in his laboratory. But what he, what he discovered when he did venture out into the streets was that his Imagine Engine was starting to actually affect the area around his house and small aspects of his imagination and his new technologies and things were actually starting to just appear. Uh, out in the general public. So he buys up several other properties around London and starts constructing more Imagine engines. And bit by bit, 
his Imagine engines, taking his imagination, start to actually turn the technology um, of his imagination into a reality. And suddenly all of London begins to be transformed into basically a steampunk age. But what he, you know, and at first he thinks this is amazing. He has actually achieved the dream of creating, you know, a, a glorious new age for the world. Unfortunately, what he also discovers is that nobody remembers um, the old world. His imagined engine has actually changed the minds of those around him as well as the technology. And so he actually becomes quite a lonely and tragic figure because what he sees as fantastic and wondrous has actually become commonplace in the world. Cool. And so he remains hidden alone in his laboratory, um, unable to really speak to anybody about what he's achieved. And But people know of Brunel. They they know of the Grand Architect, but no one sees him. So he's act- the mystique of him is created. So really what he discovers is that the only fantastic element that is actually now in this world is he himself. Cool. That's like kind of interesting in a steampunk Howard Hughes kind of way. <laughs> um, so it's, it's very interesting so far, the types of stuff that we've got. Well, necessity is the mother of invention and part of the DIY aspect of steampunk. Mm, it, but that's, that's, it's, that's also, it, it's interesting. You've really gotten into the, the spirit of the thing, which is about you know people having to do it for themselves, but mm. also um, not necessarily being masters of their environment, but in fact being... Um, like I said, I don't want to say victims, it's the wrong word, but um, certainly being... Found themselves in, in a circumstance beyond their control. Yeah, yeah, something along those lines. Okay, I've created, in my usual, typical, um, world's harshest critic sense, not just one character, I had to create a society. I've created <laughs> the Society of Cartographic Elusivism. Nice. Okay, um, so there's a five-man team, I will only tell you what the first one to do this time, but there are five members of this team, um, and I won't actually talk about the expansive world that I've got created for them, but the head of the um, the organisation is, in fact, the elusive cartographer himself, Lysander Hyde-White. Lysander carries a blank map, um, always ready to fill it in, master of a dozen languages, knowledgeable in a dozen cultures, has a geomantic connection to the Earth. He believes that the Earth talks to him and guides him to unknown places, unknown places in his dreams. He believes that the Earth is trying to help him find the drifted lands, an Avalon-type rumoured to bring paradise to Earth. Um, he is quite disdainful of civilization and cities, uh, seeing industry not just as a great poisoner of the world, but also the thing that is holding humanity and itself, the world, back. He believes that what instead of actually being the great um, thing that's going to push humanity forward, it's actually going to get humanity to stagnate, and it's actually going to cause great harm to the Earth, because he's trying to find a connection between the two. As such, he spends his life on the he spends his life on the road, or on the river, or in the air, seeking a new seeking new life for new worlds and boldly going. He is a druid in an explorer's clothes. It sounds slightly familiar. Mm, yes, I was yes quite inspired by so a few other things going on. But the whole the whole idea behind um, Lysander is that um, there are wor- there are worlds beyond the worlds that he can see, and they mm. come to him in the form of dreams, and through the dreams. He's able to map out those worlds and then go and explore them and map them out even further with the, the help of his team, of course. Um, you know, one's a, one's a doctor who's married to a, an African game hunter, but the African game hunter suffers from a debilitating disease so that the, doc, that the doctor um, is trying to discover a cure for, but it's not known to mankind because it's Martian-related. Um, 
<laughs> what? <laughs> Have I just given away something there? <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and they are they of course have um, an automatonic um, companion themselves, who's a big boilerplate looking stovepipe looking device. Like who, a golem um, sort of deal. Sorry, like a golem. Like a golem. Yeah. Um, but who's also very inspired. Hasn't quite reached artificial intelligence yet, right. but it's slowly getting there. But is almost brain the, as big as a planet. <laughs> Here I am opening doors. Pretty, not quite. Not, <laughs> he's a lot nicer than a bit more naive. And okay. then the last member of this team, who I don't have a name for yet, but the only person, the only thing that I've got for him is called the Lone Engineer. Right. Now the Lone Engineer is an American, and he is the most unknown of the group. You know, on the face of it, he um, just has a, a way with machines and hands, and he's been hired, you know, brought on initially to help keep um, the automaton um, going. Uh, but he himself harbors a secret. He's working for a group called the Conclave, who are a secret order who have planted him there to spy on the other society of uh, cartographic elusivism. And I'm thinking that, you know, that this Conclave is made up of clockwork vampires and... Um, and all and controlled by Madame Crystal. All controlled by Madame Crystal. <laughs> well, very well be. Um, but he himself is, in fact, um, a bit of a hero in America, unknown to everyone. He wears a mask and a poncho and rides around the plains as the lone engineer on his um, brass clockwork clockwork horse who has motorcycle <laughs> handles for reins um, and who saves um, save, who, run, who rides around the town rides around the, um, the plains trying to save runaway, tr- runaway towns and I mean that literally the towns mm-hmm. that he saves are, actually have railway tracks that, that can up stakes and move from, ta- move from place to place using up vast resources well, that was very impressive Luke thank you Oh, thank you, um, and thank you all for getting behind um, what was actually a lot more extensive than I thought it was. I didn't think it was actually going to take yeah. as quite as long or as be as involving as it was. That was a lot um, of fun. So thank you all for getting yeah. involved. So tally ho and what tally ho and whatnot, and thank you very much for joining uh, this roundtable. Um, next we have coming soon. Coming into cinemas in, on February 21st, we get what is sure to be Arnold Schwarzenegger's Last Stand. <laughs> um, and we also get um, the attempt uh, the attempt to do Dark Shadows is written by Stephanie Meyer um, called Beautiful Creatures. And a film I don't know anything about called The Collection. The Collection is the sequel to The Collector, which is a, a source-type movie. It's like, so you've got a, a bad guy called The Collector who uh, chaps... In the first film, I haven't seen the second film, but in the first film, he there's a guy, there's a criminal who tries to he's robbing a house. Mm. Where um, unfortunately for him, at the same time, the collector is there <laughs> setting up setting up his traps and stuff, and so he gets caught in these traps and he has to escape. Then on February 28, we in Australia finally get Cloud Atlas. Yeah, it's only taken what four months? Twenty? Oh, at least twenty decades to Did get it. Come out in like October or something. Yeah. Um, it's not get... worth the wait either, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> spoiler, for, spoiler for you now. Uh, spoiler alert, it's terrible. Okay, and then we get, um, is it a mockumentary? Is it a documentary? Did this really happen? Is it going to have happened? Is this guy real? Was this guy for real? Are we you get... ever going to tell us the name of the film? <laughs> the Imposter. It sounds a fascinating. It's a fascinating sounding, um, as I said, doco, mock- mockumentary. Did this actually happen? Um, I'm actually not going to spoil, like I say, anything about the story. Because the trailer, you should actually go and watch the trailer online, I think. Because the trailer itself, you said they're going, wow, what, what is that? But I want to see it. But yeah, I'm actually anticipating it. And um, we also get Mama, which um, I believe is a horror film. 
Yes. Yeah, it's a, a it's a uh, yeah Del Toro production. Um, he doesn't direct, but he's the producer about um, a uh, a ghost who, when she was alive, lost her children and now has latched onto these other two children and mm-hmm. sort of you know Del Toro sort of stuff. It's pretty much as soon as you say Del Toro, you know what it's about. Yeah, so it's pretty it's, much uh, the orphanage, it, the orphanage, but with a different type. Yeah, but it's kind of, it's it's had some. Uh, obviously, we get it last in the whole universe, and so it's been out for in the states, and it's got some good reviews. So I'm, I'm looking forward. To it. I'll probably check it out on DVD, but I'm certainly looking forward to The Imposter. Yeah, The Imposter does look very interesting. Sounds very interesting. Well, based on a true story, so... Or maybe. <laughs> that's true. Is this guy for real? Okay, um, so that's coming soon. Um, and next up, we have the winner for our competition. Yay! Huzzah! <laughs> for the competition, I'll hand you back over the last reigns of David, who will hold them on for, you know... I don't want reins. I want motorcycle handlebars on my... Uh... Bronze steed. Yeah. Either way, I've taken the handlebars back <laughs> after this. Alright, so uh, last episode we had a competition from our sponsors, totallyirreverent.com.au, uh, where you had the chance to win a t shirt of your choice. Uh, all you had to do was uh, comment on the website post, uh, like the Facebook post, or retweet the multiple tweets that I did. So we've got the uh, the possible winners here in the, the Nerd Culture Podcast hat that uh, my lovely assistant, Madam Crystal, <laughs> will now pick out of. So let's shake it around. And go for it. No, that's Luke. I have to chuck it back and do it again. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> not Say record, because that's technically not me. <laughs> and the winner is... John Hamilton. Awesome. Well done, John. Thank you for entering. And uh, if you would like to send us in your email address so if you can just send an email to uh, feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com um, which, which will then give me your email address and then I'll send you the details of how you can claim your free t-shirt congratulations well done John celebrate good times come on and thanks again to totallyirreverent.com.au for the competition and think of us whenever you wear your t-shirt that's right well clockwork cultural life that about wraps us up for another edition of you know the Luke show um, <laughs> you mean another edition? Isn't this the first one you've ever done? You know what to tell him. Aren't they all about me? <laughs> yeah, good point. You can contact us by email at feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com or post on our Facebook wall at www.facebook.com backslash nerdculturepodcast or tweet us at nerdculturecast. Or leave a comment on any post on our website www.nerdculturepodcast.com and don't forget to rate and review me. <laughs> That's not how you spell me. <laughs> Us on iTunes and subscribe subscribe to the podcast. So farewell, everyone from this glorianic Victorianic land. And thank and coming from me, the world's harshest critic. I thank David. I, I think I'm the only person who hasn't done it this episode. So I'm going to do it now. Huzzah! <laughs> Ironhead? My head is made of iron! Ha ha! <laughs> and Madame Crystal. My corset is too tight. I can't breathe. That's why she speaks softly. <laughs> <laughs> the truth revealed after all this time. Hail and farewell, culturalites. Bye. Bye! Bye! Bye, everybody!
podcast was brought to you by the Big Top Network.